This week's Capital Ministries Bible Study from President and Founder Ralph Drawlinger is entitled Societal Deterioration and the Epical Analysis of a Bungling Church, Part 2 of 3. Last week we examined the first in a three-part series of Bible studies that evaluate evangelism and discipleship as the primary calling of the institution of the church and its obedience to that primary calling relative to each epoch of American church history. The second key word in the title of this study is epoch, which the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines as a, quote, period of time in history or a person's life, typically one marked by notable events or particular characteristics, end quote. Last week's study dealt with an introduction to this. In part two this week, we will examine the first two of those five epics. I think you will find what follows most helpful in your understanding of the current spiritual fabric of our nation and stimulating to your personal spiritual growth. 1776, the Puritan pulpit shapes American culture. Postmillennialism was the prevailing eschatological point of view of the American church from the Puritan era all the way through to the Civil War. Postmillennialism is the Christian view that Christ will return at the end of the millennial period that is described in the book of Revelation. In this case, after which time believers would have Christianized the world and prepared the way for him. It was the dominant singular motivation why evangelicals were involved in society during this earliest period of American church history. Postmillennialism was promoted through this period of the Great Awakening by such preachers as Jonathan Edwards. In this context, the church was largely motivated by a prophetic determinism as it pertained to societal change. Accordingly, the postmillennial-driven church directly attached itself to culture and politics. Such involvement was essential to ushering in the kingdom. This is only logical in that, for the tenets of postmillennialism, Christ will only return when believers have prepared the way by Christianizing all the nations of the world. In postmillennial thought, Christianizing the world is the believer's side of the bargain that must be achieved in order to enact Christ's second coming. To illustrate the tangential fervor of this American postmillennial belief in early America, church historian George Marston summarizes what was widely believed at that time. Quote, America has a special place in God's plan and will be the center for the great spiritual and moral reform that will lead to the golden age or millennium of Christian civilization. Moral reform, accordingly, is crucial for hastening this spiritual millennium. The Puritans believe that Christ's kingdom will grow out of the spiritual and moral progress gained by and through the believer's efforts at reforming politics and culture in the present age. That belief is held today by post-millennialists who are also known as dominion theologians or theonomists or Christian Reconstructionists, and also by the latest media title, Christian Nationalism. Please see my Bible study, Better Understanding of the Fallacy of Christian Nationalism. But importantly, notice that reforming is not necessarily equated with soul winning, i.e. the simple formula and result of Luke chapter 3, evangelism. Arthur Cushman McGifford, 
a leading post-millennialist who stated, quote, The kingdom of God is not a kingdom lying in another world beyond the skies, but established here and now, end quote. He illustrates further the summation of this belief. Accordingly, missionary progress was measured during the Puritan period not only in terms of evangelistic crusades, revival, and church planting, but in terms of cultural advancement. Cultural successes pertaining to slavery, abolition, and technological achievement were just as much measurements of the Christianization of America as anything else. The point is that before theological modernism intruded into the church and after the Civil War, the next epic we will examine, most Christians actively engaged in the culture and in politics to prepare the world for Christ's second coming. This thinking characterized post-millennialism and was the singular prevailing theological impetus that motivated, wedded, and justified the church's emphasis and direct involvement in the politics and culture of the country. Whether this is a model that today's evangelical church should employ for similar success depends upon a careful exegetical examination to determine whether post-millennialism eschatology is scriptural. In fact, post-millennialism is not exegetically popular today. It has been roundly discounted by leading conservative evangelical theologians. In the late 20th and now 21st century, the dominant eschatology in the American church is premillennialism. In vast contrast to postmillennialism, this predominant eschatological camp believes that Christ's second coming will occur at the start of the millennial period in order to save the world from its own demise and tragedy. Most of the leading national evangelical expository preachers that you hear on the radio today are pre-millennialists. This argument is biblically defensible, but arguing for this viewpoint herein is beyond the scope of this study. Accordingly, post-millennialism is in no position to be the tour de force that it once was so as to be a leading impetus and motivation for cultural change today. From an interpretive, exegetical standpoint, in want of biblical accuracy, this is a good thing because there is no scripture to support the idea that Christ's second coming depends on the church Christianizing culture beforehand. Postmillennialism, as known as prophetic determinism, is a convenient, pragmatic, motivational way to engage believers in culture but it is woefully lacking in terms of exegetical, biblical underpinnings. In other words, any basis for the church's social involvement must depend upon it being biblically substantiated. A theological discussion pertaining to the strengths and weaknesses of postmillennialism warrants its own Bible study at another time. To be clear, if the premise of postmillennialism is built on faulty eschatology, and by the way, it was rejected by the American church by the conclusion of World War II, then it stands to reason that what motivated Puritan cultural involvement back then is non-sustainable and incapable of being the vehicle to involve the church in politics and culture today. To summarize this first epic of American church history as it pertains to the preeminence of saving faith to societal change, the emphasis of Luke chapter 3, Ephesians 2 and 5, 
and the four parallel passages listed at the endnotes of this study, the impetus and formula that served to engage the early American church in a mission to change society was motivated by post-millennial eschatology more than simple evangelism. The Puritan motivation to change culture was based on a very pragmatic but exegetically faulty eschatology, more than the simple evangelism formula contained in this week's passage of Luke, chapter 3. It follows that for the church today to be motivated in ways similar, it would have to readopt a faulty eschatology that it already rejected. 1877, the encroachment of theological liberalism. The period in American church history that immediately followed Puritanism was the rise of modernism, or better, theological liberalism. This changing of the guard was a dominant but not entire metamorphosis that occurred over a period of time from approximately 1865 to 1915. It predominantly transformed post-millennial-driven Puritanism into liberal Protestantism and ushered in what is commonly referred to as the emergence of a social gospel form of Christianity. During this period of American church history, there can be no doubt as to the accelerating involvement of the American church into the political and social arena as depicted by the synonymous name, the social gospel. The more pertinent question, however, is, was the social gospel form of Christianity a biblical Christianity as well, or, for that matter, was it Christianity at all? Said resoundingly, no, it is not. After his book, Christianity and Liberalism, was published in 1923, Machen became the chief spokesman against what had become a thoroughly established liberal Protestantism. Machen, from whose primer I learned the Greek language, had been a New Testament professor at Princeton Theological Seminary before the liberal Presbyterians wrestle control of the institution. Machen and his theologically conservative cohorts then left the school to found Westminster Seminary. Importantly and accurately, he insisted that liberal Protestantism was, quote, another religion, since it proposed an entirely new view of Jesus and a scheme of salvation other than Christianity had ever taught before, end quote. Accordingly, Machen was accurate, and I summarize his thinking here. Modernist Christianity possessed no scriptural basis for political, social involvement because it was not a legitimate depiction of Christianity to begin with. Liberal Protestantism had escaped the confines of Christianity's irreducible minimums. The core heresy of liberal theology continues to be this. Jesus is not our Savior. He is merely a humble, humanitarian role model worthy of personal exemplification, as if that is all that Jesus is about. Herein is a satanic stripping away, a denuding of the power of the cross of Christ. Theological liberals do not believe Christ is a savior or that man's soul is in need of saving. Modernism represented a not-so-subtle convergence of four concussionary confluences on Puritan Christianity. Briefly, it was composed of naturalism or Darwinism, which raised doubt as to the supernatural and scientific accuracy of Scripture. Secondly, modernism contained within it 
the presupposition of human rationalism. That is to say that man's reasoning was deemed superior to God's revelation in Scripture. Therefore, whatever in Scripture could not be understood through man's reasoning, which is finite and fallen, I might add, was viewed with suspicion. Thirdly, historical criticism was imported from the Tübingen School in Germany. This criticism had many forms with the intellectual intent of casting doubt, among other things, on the accuracy of the Synoptic Gospels, which are the Gospels written from a similar point of view by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It asked the question, could the believer trust what Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote? It questioned whether the historical Jesus was different from the Christian Jesus that the Gospel writers had portrayed and embellished. In this sense, the Scriptures were tainted with theoretical plausible doubt through both naturalism and historical criticism, which is the science of codifying the ancient manuscript evidence in the manufacture of the Bible. Add to that the fourth confluence of the encroaching social gospel, as invented by Kant, Schleiermacher, and Beecher, and Christianity had degenerated into nothing more than a moral code for people to live by. Liberal Protestantism was, and remains, a far cry from biblical Christianity. As an aside, this explains why so many who say they are Christians in the capital, but who in fact are embedded in the false Christianity of theological liberalism, reason differently on policy issues. As Machen quipped, quote, they may wear the name Christian on their shirt sleeve, but they are part of another religion, end quote. During this period of what we'll call American church theological transformation, there was very little defense of the true, biblically-based Christian faith by traditional theologians. The lion-hearted rhetoric of William F. Warren, the president of Boston University, provides insight to the fact that conservative Christian leaders were pridefully asleep at the wheel. Notice this in his words, quote, Toward the middle of the last century came the fullness of God's time for generating a new Christian nationality. Now all these threatening surges of anti-Christian thought have come to us from European seas, not one arose in our own hemisphere, end quote. Conservative Christian leadership of that time either possessed few apologists of learning, or they made little of the threat until it was too late. They were reluctant to justifiably be angry, Ephesians 4.26, in the sense of appropriate righteous indignation and mount an aggressive rejection of encroaching false doctrine. This attitude is descriptive of the great evangelist D.L. Moody. He was opposed to controversy itself, whereas the New Testament writer Jude preempted his soteriological emphasis in order to earnestly defend the faith from apostasy. Whereas the New Testament writer Jude preempted his soteriological emphasis in order to earnestly defend the faith from apostasy, Jude 3, Moody, who possessed the platform and the influence to do so in the American church as a leading evangelist, had no part in such activities. He was known as a theological pragmatist and often tested doctrines relative to their suitability for evangelism. He always sought peace and avoided controversy, seeking a religion of the heart versus a religion of the mind. 
He often dialogued with theological liberals, giving them grace with a hope that they would eventually come around and embrace biblical views. But such was not the case, and in part, as a result, modernism became well-rooted, the primary theological and cultural force in America at that time. When all was said and done, the social gospel had eclipsed the Puritan pulpit as the major influence in American culture. The church was now, for certain, engaged in societal change, but was far from being the true church of the New Testament. The previous four concussionary confluences now had similar weight, if not greater prominence, than did singular, simple, biblical exegesis. Now with the emergence of theological liberalism, the Bible was not the only source that informed Christian belief. It therefore follows that modernists' justification for social action by citing Scripture is largely illegitimate. This is because they truncate the basic doctrines of biblical Christianity in order to achieve their social gospel ends. The historic doctrines of the faith were reworked and modified into a counterfeit foundation for social aims. Theological liberals are scripture twisters. Make no mistake, scripture does not justify the social gospel as much of it is the replacement of scripture. Therefore, scripture does not validate the political, social direction of modernism because the social gospel is not a substantiated manifestation of biblical Christianity to begin with. More importantly, it is antithetical to it. Modernism was founded upon a self-styled, eisegetical definition to read one's opinions into, epistemology, which seeks to morph and twist Scripture in order to use it to support preconceived liberal social views versus the objective use of Scripture, which is motivated by a desire to extract and apply from it its timeless, immutable precepts. Accordingly, this period of church history does not have a legitimate, extracted from Scripture, theological treatise to biblically justify its social expression. Therefore, Christian involvement in the political arena through this epoch of American church history is found wanting of an accurate biblically and theological underpinning. The formula for cultural change, as presented in Luke chapter 3, was far from its agenda because theological liberalism was about social moralism, not personal evangelism. In fact, the church of the social gospel changes scripture in order to change culture. For example, nowhere in the New Testament is there a command for the institution of the state to take care of the poor. In a careful study of scripture relative to this politically divisive issue, The stewardship responsibility lies at the feet of the individual, the family, and the institution of the church in that order of priority. Social gospelers would have you think otherwise. Based on scripture, this is faulty theology. What about the coming fundamentalist period? Would it be characterized by the primacy of saving faith to create societal change? We will look at that next in part three. This concludes our Bible study for this week. Thank you for all you do in our great country and on the Hill. May God bless you deeply. This is Frank Sontag.